Historically, pandemics have forced humans to break with the past and imagine their world anew. This one is no different. It's a portal, a gateway between one world and the next. We can choose to walk through it, dragging the carcasses of our prejudice and hatred, our avarice, our data banks and dead ideas, our dead rivers and smoky skies behind us. Or we can walk through lightly with little luggage, ready to imagine another world and ready to fight for it. Welcome to the People versus Inequality podcast. In a time of crisis and fast change, this podcast is a space to reflect and learn with changemakers on how to tackle inequality. By diving into the choices they make and the approaches they take, but also the obstacles they face and their hopes and dreams in making real change happen. I am Barbara van Passen, the host of this podcast, and I'm always looking for where and how change happens. This is the fourth and last episodes of the very first series focusing on women's economic justice, asking the question, how can we make COVID the game changer we so desperately need? In the past episodes, we heard from three amazing women about their work, about what they learned and what they think is needed to turn the tide. Today, we look back on their stories and what new insights and strategies we can take with us moving forward. I will not be doing this alone, but with yet another three amazing women who are joining us on this journey to reflect on how to tackle inequality. So grab a coffee or tea and listen in on the conversations. Today, we have a pretty impressive lineup with some of the brightest thinkers on women's economic justice and the world of changemaking. You will hear Armine Ishkanian, Associate Professor in Social Policy at LSE and the Director of the Atlantic Fellowship Program. You will also hear Gnaila Kabir, Professor of Gender and Development at LSE. And last but not least, Joki Jeu, longtime organizer, feminist, and the Pan-Africa coordinator of the Fight Inequality Alliance. I spoke to the three of them. I realized again, there is so much to learn from the work of organizers, advocates, and those supporting movements, especially with all that has happened in the past two years. So let's hear from Professor Kabir. Naila, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm really curious to hear from you sort of building on your experience and what you've seen during the pandemic and then hearing the three episodes of this first series. What struck you most in what you've heard? I've obviously listened to all three of the, the episodes and I have to congratulate you on a really interesting and you know, complimentary selection of people uh, because each of them actually spoke to what I think is a, a larger agenda that we should be uh, focusing on for the future. So you had um, Elizabeth Tang, talking about her experiences organizing one of the hardest to organize group of workers, you know, domestic workers in the informal economy, isolated often in people's homes, you know, not even aware of the value of what they do, uh, very few rights. And so the fact that they have now formed their own international network, they've had the ILO pass a convention on their behalf. This is a short of, you know, nothing short of miraculous. So you've got trade unions and union organization. And then you had Amelia Reyes. And so I see organizing as a way of exerting bottom-up pressure on to the agenda for economic justice. And then you had Amelia Reyes. And then she talked very much about advocacy, advocacy at the macro level, advocacy with uh, the major uh, uh, financial institutions, UNCTAD, the World Bank and so on. And what I really thought is very important is that 
although we should emphasize the grassroots mobilizing, we need to work on people at the top. And that's not easy because they come with their own ready-made worldviews in which they have a stake. You know, they don't actually have a stake for dismantling partial worldviews and looking at the whole. So, you know, people like Amelia trying to do advocacy around issues. And I thought the issues she, she used as examples were very good, you know, about uh, illicit trade flows. You know, the way that countries lose out on public revenue that could be used for an economic justice agenda because it goes into the pockets of a few people. That's part of a larger conversation about budgets, resources, allocations, and citizenship. I noticed that she used the word citizen quite often in her presentation because she was talking about how, you know, people, let us say in Mexico, etc., do not have the citizenship rights to hold accountable corporations that are based in the north and are siphoning off profits. So I thought that was very interesting. And then I, your third uh, speaker, Anuradha, she talked about financing in South Asia. And obviously, as you pointed out in the interview, money, we've got to follow the money, <laughs> make sure it's spent well. But I also like the fact that she seems to have come out of a past, of a history of working with self-help groups in India. And of course, self-help groups are an alternative to trade unions for self-employed rural workers. So she had quite a deep knowledge about how important it was for women in rural areas to come together around their own agendas. And she also spoke quite interestingly to the start of Amelia's conversation, which was her experience and why she decided to go into this macro level advocacy, which was going to Guatemala and talking to these indigenous communities who had been sent pigs by a well-meaning donor and the pigs ate more than the family. So they ended up eating up their pigs because it seemed to make more sense. But one of the things Amelia said, they had said to her is, why didn't they ask us? You know, why did they not consult us? And I thought the self-help group model actually allows that kind of two-way dialogue to take place. And of course, we know that philanthropy is becoming an important part of the way we finance development agenda. But, you know, economic justice doesn't always come to the forefront of philanthropy. I still have a preference for corporations to pay their taxes rather than set up independent philanthropic organizations which will promote their name and their children's name and so on. Yeah. So those were my reactions to what I heard. Next, we hear from Armine. Welcome. It's so great to have you here. Thanks, Barbara, for having me on your show. Really happy to be here. And it's particularly great to have you here because you've kind of been supporting me on this journey from the start, really making this uh, idea that I had for a long time reality. So I, I want to thank you for that. I'm just very curious, what did you think of the episode so far? I really enjoyed the episodes. I think they're fantastic and they come at it from different perspectives in terms of thinking around women's economic justice and how we advance that, but also around the impact of COVID and whether or not COVID can be a game changer and what needs to happen in order for COVID to be the game changer that we need. And I thought all of the speakers brought up so many points that resonated with my own thinking and my own experiences as someone who studies social policy and also the role of civil society in transforming societies and creating social change. What struck me most is how all three speakers, Elizabeth, Anuradha, and also Emilia, were reflecting on 
the question of change needs to happen, but how does change happen? What needs to be done in order to make changes? And what actors need to be involved? So they were reflecting on their own kind of actions and journeys, but also how they work with different communities and stakeholders. And so I think, you know, this raises the question of what do we mean by positive change and what are we working towards? And is our conception of the good society or the good life or what constitute well-being, what constitutes well-being, the same everywhere? And I think this really came out in these conversations in terms of what levels we're thinking about, you know, where we are working towards change at a systemic level, but also recognizing that sometimes the changes need to be discussed and implemented and happen at a very local level. And that what constitutes well-being for humans, for animals and nature isn't always going to be the same everywhere. So it's about creating that space. And I think, you know, one of the great things about this podcast is that you have created this space where we can have these conversations and step back from our busy lives and really think through the bigger questions of what changes need to happen in order for there to be greater equality, more sustainability and better lives for people and the planet. I asked Jockey the same question. Building on her experience challenging inequality in many different ways, what struck her in the three episodes? It was inspiring. It's always good to hear and to learn from people who are doing work is so critical and so important and so hands-on, which is the sense that I got from the three women. Sometimes we use the word intersectional or intersectionality almost as if it's now the fashionable word to use. But when I listened to those three podcasts, they were using different words, but it was really about the same struggle. It was really about the same concerns. And it was about an indictment of a system that is very, very much dependent on women in terms of how it makes it and how the system makes it and uses women's labor and kind of adds to women's burdens in order to su- to survive and to succeed. So it was really quite a powerful experience to listen to those three amazing women who taught almost non-matter-of-factly about the work that they do. It is their everydayness, but it is also very powerful and very important. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing that. And, and that was really also my sense, having those conversations and then again, listening back, how grateful I am also of people doing this work. Yeah, just, just how important it is. I think the conversations both showed the urgency of the issues that mm-hmm. I has, has become very clear and, and has also grown probably in the past period, but also the hard work that comes with it and, and how much of that is is needed and how much are women's work and contributions are really undercounted and unappreciated i think that these issues are really important and the conversations are quite important because we do also derive inspiration like listening to those three women it's important that also those conversations happen and i'm glad you're doing the podcast because It's another way to confront and to deal with this and to learn and to really think about what is it that we're doing, what kind of a world are we living in and what do we need to do to make it just and to make it a place that we enjoy 
not just in small snatches, but along the way in many, many places. Something that stood out for all three guests, as it did for me, is the importance of participation and representation. It seems like such an obvious principle for decision-making and and tackling inequality, yet it happens so little in practice. So what can we do? Being humble, listening, ensuring visibility, and being mindful of intersectionalities are some of the ideas that came up in the conversations. I think what I took away is that despite the fact that they're working in different sectors and different organizational formats, all three women were committed to participatory forms of working and they were willing and able and committed to listening to different voices. So, you know, they were talking about how they were working with their, you know, the communities, but also working with policymakers at the national and international levels and, and really not working in the way that we've seen so often where, you know, someone, an organization, however well-intentioned, decides to take an action without consulting the communities that they're aiming to help. And Anuradha also, in her episode, was talking about, you know, the need of talking to local communities and asking people. And you think this is something so basic, Mm, right? Right. And, And yet it doesn't happen. And I think this is why, you know, we need to think about the how, the processes, right? If we say we want to achieve more equitable, fairer, more inclusive societies, you know, it's not clear how we are going to get there. But unless we involve the people in that conversation, in the agenda setting and decision making, I think we're just going to end up reproducing some of the same problems that we've seen. Mm-hmm. So it's really around thinking around prefigurative politics and prefigurative practices, we say another world is possible, but how do we get there? How do we create that world? And I think one of the ways, and this has been, you know, this is not a new idea, is that we involve everyone in that conversation. We allow for that space where creativity can flourish, where new ideas can be discussed and articulated, experimented with and advanced. And so I found all of the women that you interviewed grappling with that and thinking about their own role, about their own access to power, but also about their actions um, day to day and, you know, in terms of the work that they're trying to achieve. The story about the pigs Hmm. um, struck me because I think it's another example of how women's knowledge, women's needs, people's self-agency is often underestimated that somebody can come and look at a community and decide I want to help and then and then say this is what I'm gonna I'm gonna do to them and not consider how whether it is helpful whether it's adding to the burden that women already have whether it is appropriate there are so many questions I'm really glad you brought up the point of visibility it resonates again with work that I've done and research that I've done around you know, policymaking and representation and recognition. And here, you know, there is the importance to acknowledge that if someone is not visible or legible to policymakers, their needs are not going to be addressed. 
And for many years, you had these intermediary organizations, such as NGOs, who would speak on behalf of the impacted groups. And I think what's changing now, and, and all of your speakers, and particularly what Elizabeth was saying about bringing domestic workers into the global policymaking spaces and having them present their stories, their truths, so they could be heard. Now, that's one step, right? Having those voices heard. The next step is, well, what happens then in terms of the policy shaping agenda? Because it's not immediate, right? Just because someone listens to these voices that changes are going to be made. So it's a constant process of making sure that those stories are then turned into specific actionable points that can be taken forward. And again, that's not going to be a straightforward process. And that's why we need accountability. We need constant monitoring and evaluation across the policy process. It's not just about the agenda setting and the decision-making stages, but it's about the implementation stages yeah. and making sure that you know we are in a responsive kind of policy-making mode where changes can be made. And so I thought Elizabeth's work in terms of first mobilizing the domestic workers and creating space for them to think about what and articulate what their needs are, but then helping them come into those spaces and present those needs. Maybe we should talk a little bit about intersectionalities. Mm -hmm. um, I think in two ways, in the sense that clearly a lot of these issues are very interlinked, but also the conversations really show how some women are harder hit than others, right? I know that Elizabeth said to me, they're domestic workers already not very well recognized and appreciated by many. They're women and often they're migrants. I mean, so they're kind of stuck. They have these triple discriminations against them, making the, making the work really hard. So these intersectionalities are really important to understand and address. How can we take that agenda forward? How can we you know, make sure that these issues are on the agenda and that we actually address, we take an intersectional approach to women's economic justice? We move away from monocategorical ways of seeing the world, you know, these dichotomous ways of seeing the world, and understand that everyone is a bearer of multiple identities. But some of these identities simply reinforce their subordinate position. So for me, I think I have, I think, you know, in terms, I do research, you know, I'm not a, a practitioner, I'm a teaching practitioner, but, you know, a lot of my work has been very much about what injustice looks like at the intersection of inequalities. And I think there what we have to acknowledge is that if we talk in terms of single groups, single homogenous groups, we will inevitably serve the interests of the most privileged within that group. We did a study with indigenous groups in India, the Adivasi community. See, Adivasi communities are possibly the most marginalized group in India, but they have their own internal inequalities and gender is one of them. So when we talk about giving Adivasi groups collective rights to govern themselves, we have to also be careful that the rights of individuals within those groups are recognized. So I think an intersectional approach is constantly about balancing group identities with internal, you know, the internal inequalities. I asked Naila what she thinks COVID has taught us about where we stand on women's economic justice. Something that really came across from the conversations is the dire situation that so many women and communities are in 
and that there is some sort of recognition of that at different levels, but is it really enough? I mean, the serious nature of the inequalities and even despair that women in communities face is so huge. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on where we stand with women's economic justice and what the pandemic has maybe revealed. We often say it's revealed and exacerbated. I mean, does this really do justice to the serious situation we're in? I think the first thing that has struck us all is the interdependence of the world, you know, that a virus in some place in China has now brought the entire global economy to a, a halt. And it's brought home to us the extent to which this uh, drive for consumption that drives the present uh, economic system has taken us into places that are really destructive, destructive of the environment, destructive of human resilience, you know, people's capacity to renew with themselves uh, in a healthy, educated and so on way. So I think it's brought that home to us. But above all, I think the pandemic has brought into sharp relief the kinds of inequalities that we have been taking for granted. You know, they become a part of a familiar background. We talk about the 1%. But, you know, what the pandemic has reminded us is that, you know, the 10 richest people in the world, the billionaires, are all male, are all white, and they mostly live in the US. And if we were to try and work out who are the poorest people in the world, well, there's too many of them, but we can almost safely say that the majority of them are going to be women from marginalized social groups, whichever country they're in, it might be indigenous, it might be race, who eke out a living on the very margins of the informal economy. So is that a world we want to continue to preserve? After the financial crisis of 2008, when everybody said business cannot go on as usual, well, it did, you know, and the reactions, the the responses of governments was austerity in the end, which actually hurt the people who had been hurt by crisis. One of the questions we really asked in this podcast was how to balance this short term, urgent, very material and practical needs um, with um, long term strategic change um, the work that we the sort of long yeah the the bigger agendas that we need to tackle Uh, and and all three of them had some reflections on that um, again coming from their own perspectives and I particularly was struck by uh, something Emilia said around the risk of everyone tending their own fires Um, also Anurada said you know that there there is a tendency to only focus on the the, the urgent immediate very logically because people are trying to survive, but we, we, we cannot have that. We need to continue to both connect uh, um, with each other and, and look at this long-term agenda. What are some of the things you picked up on that or, or any ideas you have on moving that forward? I think those were some of the most important reflections in the conversation and really highlighted the impact of COVID on all of us, right? I think we're all exhausted. We're all run down by what we've experienced in the past 18, 19 months. And these are real challenges. If you see someone is hungry, you cannot ignore that and say, well, actually I'm working to smash the patriarchy, you know, this weight. Um, I think the whole idea is how do you balance that and how do you make space for the much needed meeting of immediate needs, but also the structural work that needs to happen in order to achieve systemic transformation. And I think 
all of um, Elizabeth, Amelia, and Anuradha were all reflecting on that. And, and I was listening to them and thinking, yes, this is a big challenge. And I've seen this in my own work in communities, for instance, in Greece that were providing assistance to migrants, but also recognizing that sometimes when you do this work, it takes away from your energy and the time that you need to do the more structural work. I don't have an answer to this, right? I think what we need to do is perhaps do a bit of reflecting on how we divide the labor in terms of who does what and when, because otherwise all of us will become tired and exhausted in this process. And I think you reflected on this need for self-care. I think this has come out and particularly for women who take on you know, the social reproduction, the care in the in the home, but also in terms of working towards societal change, it runs you down. And so how can we divide this up so that not all of us are doing all of this work all of the time and think about mm. who does what? And again, that's something that isn't going to happen on its own. It's going to happen by reflecting on these conversations and these experiences and thinking about that. So I'm glad, you know, we're thinking about this and acknowledging it. And I think self-care is absolutely essential because otherwise we burn out and, yeah. and that helps no one. There's a difference between short-term and long-term and absolutely urgent and, you know, broader strategic concerns. So when something is absolutely urgent, it's absolutely urgent and there's absolutely no getting away from it. It's non-negotiable. You know, you need money to feed your kids. You need, it just, you need to pay your rent. You know, all of that is urgent. But if we can move away from the immediate and the urgent to something around the practical, right? I think this is something we've been working on for a long time. And that is to try and get over the idea of practical and strategic as somehow dichotomous to think of ways of addressing the practical that will give it some potential for building people's capacity to address the strategic. So what about the portal? Do we really have an opportunity to do things differently? And if so, how can we make sure we use this moment? I ask our guests what they took away from the three episodes on this question and was excited to hear their emphasis on coming together and movement building, something that stood out for me as well. What we're trying to find also in this episode is, or in this series, what are some of the opportunities, but how can we really, you know, use them well, make sure we don't lose this momentum uh, to move forward. From that perspective and from what you've heard, what are some of the key sort of lessons that you would take away from the conversations I had? The future lies in collective action, that is for sure. You know, it is only through the power of conscious numbers, you know, numbers that are motivated by the desire for change. That is the future. So the challenge and opportunities are all about how do we get that kind of collectivities built around where it makes people, it makes sense for people. So I noticed that Elizabeth Tang talked about how under the present circumstances, they're having to think of practical support for their members. And this is not something that a union is accustomed to doing because they're about advocacy. But it does tell us something important, that if people don't have some minimum level of livelihood security, their ability to organize is going to be compromised. You know, if the only thing that stands between you and hunger and your children's hunger is your ability to work, you're not going to jeopardize that form of work you know, in any way by asking for more, demanding or bargaining. So for me, that practical element 
is very key. And so that takes me to what is being advocated for at the global level more strongly now than ever is the issue of a global social floor. You know, I think if we are to have a future where everybody lives with dignity, works with dignity, we're not going to assure labor rights overnight. But I think we can, we have the makings of social flaws in different countries, and we have to build on it. So that to me is a very important part of, of, of the And future. that ties into conversations around basic income or Absolutely. other types basic of social income, welfare. Basic services, investment in care, some kind of basic income flaw is essential, but it's not enough. Basic income still individualizes. I think essential basic services, that's something we all share in, has the potential to build a shared sense of citizenship, which is what we want. Yeah. So I think that is one of the opportunities. But the challenge to me, again, was picked up by your colleagues, including Elizabeth and um, Amelia. Amelia talked about how her work at the macro global level is undermined by all the different agendas that are going on together, even though those agendas have a common value of social justice, of economic justice and social justice. So I think a challenge is how do we bring all this energy together to be working in the same direction? Amelia talked about, uh, I like that phrase, you know, campaign of campaigns. And we have the women in the informal economy globalizing and organizing who are a network of networks. You know, so I like this business of trying to not blot out individual agendas at all, but for people working in different parts of the social justice agenda to recognize the importance of coming together around maybe one shared objective maybe a global social floor, you know, maybe uh, investment in the care economy for all. Hmm. So I, I think the business of a unified numbers, unified and conscious numbers, I think is, uh, is, is the challenge and the opportunity. What was coming through was the need to work in solidarity, the, the, the connections. If you are talking about women having the services and the resources that they need. You cannot disconnect it from debts. You cannot disconnect it from illicit financial flows. You cannot disconnect it from women's rights, labor rights. And you cannot disconnect it from women's dignity in terms of how they make their lives and how their communities survive and, and, and thrive. The intersectionality, the connections, that weaving, if you will, of different strands of thread, of color, of issues, that weaving that makes, that constitutes women's lives is really quite important in that sense that I, as a woman, you are the one who is facing challenges of health, of access to water, of education, of uh, your land rights, of sexual and gender-based violence in the, the domestic and the community arena. This, it is the same person. You cannot cut yourselves up and say, this is the part that feels the sexual and gender-based violence, and this is the part that suffers because there's not water. It is the same person. It is the same family. It's the same community. It is the same country. They talk about death by a thousand cats. I want to talk about life and justice by a thousand efforts and a thousand fists. Again, back to the question or the issue of, or, or the idea of inter intersectionality, that when we understand that all these e issues um, are connected, that 
there is no separation of countries. There is no separation of genders. There's no separation by age or all of that, that when there is a challenge that impacts people, it is not isolated and it is connected to so many other things. So debt is connected to the quality of education, to the kind of health service that I may receive or may not receive. It is connected to the quality of water I um I get in in my house. It is connected to whether the climate is being protected or being violated. It is connected to the dignity of the communities that end up having the debt paid on their backs. When we understand all those connections from the smallest one to the biggest one, and then also understand that those connections are not valued equally then we need to be building broader and more connected movements so that I don't see an an organization or a country or activists from the North don't see themselves as being in competition with each other or with activists in the South. um, I don't see another women's organization or another alliance as being my competition whether for funding or for for public profile or for recognition or whatever. And I think it is those kinds of beginning to understand that it is less about competition with each other, but actually solidarity. But I also think it's about creating more strategic alliances. And this reminds me of the campaign of campaigns that Emilia is involved in. And how difficult sometimes it is to create alliances across movements, across issues, because we are actually facing multiple interconnected crises, right? There's COVID, there is the climate crisis, there is, you know, for the past 10 years or more, we've faced the crisis of austerity in many places. In other places, you know, we are facing rising authoritarianism and fascist Mm -hmm. politics. And yet we see sometimes movements are working in isolation. They're not coming together, even though people are being impacted by all of these crises at the same time. And so it's about how do we think strategically? How do we connect some of these issues? How do we pool our resources rather than saying, well, I'm working on this and you're working on that and that has nothing to do with each other. That's not the case. It's about how do we think more creatively and holistically? And I think that is a challenge. And that's why having people who can step back and reflect and think about this and make those connections is so important. About people who are going to act as let's say translators or brokers or intermediaries Mm. between movements and who will say you know the growing inequalities are not disconnected from the issues of climate they're very much interconnected right and how do we bring that together so it's about moving away from the silos not just in organizationals or sectors you know, spaces or sectors, but really within movements and recognizing the connections between the issues. And, you know, if we want to see changes happening, we need to start being those changes ourselves and challenging ourselves to think beyond a single issue. 
And as an academic who does research, I'm always mindful about what is, what is the point of my research? How do I take my research and communicate it? And not only communicate it, but also make sure that it's useful to people, mm. to communities. And rather than, you know, in a silo or in some ivory tower. And so I think this is really important to talk about the types of knowledge that we create, moving beyond knowledge inequalities and epistemic injustices and making sure that we are ourselves reflecting about our own responsibilities to work with others, to have those conversations, right? You can't sit and wait. Well, I'm just going to sit and wait for some NGO to come and talk to me. No, you initiate that and you have those conversations. And it's difficult because, you know, again, we have, you know, kind of gone into very adversarial relationships. And I think we need to move beyond those adversarial relationships and find the spaces and the and create the opportunities to have these conversations. How can we imagine a different world as part of our strategic reflections? We need to step back and reflect mm. and think about that in order to imagine and create, we need to marshal our capacities. And I recognize, you know, we've, we've been talking about this, the challenges of doing that. And perhaps it is about thinking strategically, not trying to do everything, but finding where is our niche, right? So, and, and all of the interviewees reflected on that with Elizabeth saying, well, my skill is a, as a trade union organizer and that's what I do best. That's what I can do best. Maybe yeah. someone else can do you know, the service delivery work while I do what I do best. And Amelia was talking about her role. Mm -hmm. So I think here it's about recognizing, again, our own capacities, our own power, but also our own limits about what we can do without burning out and what we can do well together with others. As we look at how to move forward, I ask all three what gives them hope from what they've heard and from their own experience. I am hopeful, because that's a word I wanted to take away from those three conversations, is if we want to talk about mobilizing and organizing, hope is key. And I think, you know, forms of theory that are, you know, are totalizing forms of power don't do us any good because they block out, blot out the possibility of change. So my hope coming out of this pandemic is that it is so global, it is so pervasive, it has affected each and every one of us. And we all recognize those who are more privileged that we are living in the midst of precarity, uh, harm, oppression. Will that, you know, be a kind of wake up call to the people who have the power to make change happen? So, yes, it's dire. It couldn't be worse. And I think, you know, people like the domestic workers, we've suddenly realized those workers that we take for granted actually have nothing to fall back on. You know, they rely on us for their daily living. So it's the sheer direness of the situation. I hope therein may lie the hope for the future. I reflect and, and think a lot around in my own work around agency and power. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, there is this sense of, you know, hopelessness brought on by everything that's happening. But we also need to hold on to recognizing that we are the change. We are the change makers that we were waiting for. 
And as you mentioned, you know, there, the pandemic has also highlighted examples of solidarity, of women's solidarity, of emergent agency. When I think about agency, I'm reminded of the work by Emmy Breyer and Mish, who talk about one of the most important forms of agency is projective agency. That means the ability to imagine what you want to achieve and then start working towards that, right? And no matter you know, what kind of constraints we're under, that agency we all possess. But what is it that we want to, to reach, right, to, to imagine? The projective agency, I think, is really important. And the pandemic, for all of the harm it did, it also gave me a sense of recognition that, well, you know, change is possible. We can do things differently. And all of your speakers also reflected on this, about learning to organize in a digital way, about recognizing that, you know, we can connect without having to get on a plane and travel. We can connect with one another in different places. We can do things differently, digital working and so forth. And I think that's an important learning. I think another important learning, at least for me, was, you know, we don't need to constantly be buying things. We can do with less, you know, and challenging the hyper consumerism. That's a key element of capitalism that drives some of the, mm -hmm. the problems that we're seeing. So it's really about saying, you know, change is possible. And we've now created, you know, the pandemic has created a space for challenging our thinking and, and working styles and, and learning um, styles and, and methods. So let's embrace that. And let's mm -hmm. think about how do we do things differently? And what is it that we want to achieve? So it's bringing the how with the what yeah. and the why, obviously. And so I think the projective agency, you know, is, is kind of, you know, we can also think about it as a theory of change, you know, or a path that we want to go on and, and, and start working towards that. So I do have hope. Looking at the, the struggles that we have won or that have been won you know not perfectly but there are situations where we have won and gotten things that even in demanding those very things some people looked and said you're crazy and so whether you're looking back to when there was a fight for women's right to vote or whether it was a struggle against apartheid or whether it is the right of women to own land and property, or whether it is debt cancellation. None of those, by the way, are or were perfect struggles or the result or the solution was perfect. I have hope because I know that in the words of Martin Luther King Jr., that the act of justice is long. And so I do not believe that these and situations we are in are permanent, which is why I keep fighting. Because if I if I think it's infutility, if we all thought that it was infutility, we would just kind of sit back, lie down, and and wait to die or wait to be run over by the systems. So I have hope, both hope and inspiration, because when you listen to people talking about and, and when you see people responding to the challenges in their communities, fighting against all odds, you know, literally fighting armies, powerful armies, and, 
and powerful forces worth reach and influence that uh, that they don't have, but that's who they are confronting. The tenacity of people who say, ah, ain't gonna take it. And even if I'm, I will suffer it, I will suffer it, but I will still be fighting. That is what gives me hope. And when I listen to the stories, both of suffering, but also of enduring, of surviving, of thriving, that gives me hope. On that hopeful note, we close off this first series of the People versus Inequality podcast. I take away so much on what is needed for women's economic justice, from organizing and advocating to challenge social norms and unfair policies, to using this real opportunity to come together and bridge silos in new and radical ways. I thank Armine, Naila and Jockey for joining me today and all of you for listening. I also thank our earlier speakers, Elizabeth, Emilia and Anurada for giving us so much to chew on and for the great work they do. If you haven't had a chance to hear all three conversations before, I really recommend as there was so much more than we could cover today. Also, watch this space as we are working on a next series, this time on climate justice. So very timely and exciting. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you enjoyed the conversation, please subscribe, share, leave a review. Any support in spreading the word is very welcome. And so is your feedback. For now, take care. Ciao.